Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. David Cohen and Elizabeth Mayer, with host Elizabeth Gore, tackle the immigration debate in our latest podcast. They explain what zero tolerance actually means, ICE's controversial implementation of the administration's policies, and what the chances are for a legislative solution to the immigration issue. Looking forward, they also discuss how technology is revolutionizing the various agencies involved in immigration, customs, and border protection. Welcome back to another podcast here at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek. I'm Elizabeth Gore, Policy Director and Chair of Brownstein's Government Relations Department. Today, I am joined by Elizabeth Mayer and David Cohen, and we're going to be talking about the issue of immigration. Elizabeth Mayer, Policy Director, worked for more than 10 years as Legislative Director to Senator John Kyle of Arizona, and she now focuses her efforts and expertise on advising Brownstein's clients on immigration, trade, labor, and homeland security matters. David Cohen has recently returned to Brownstein as a shareholder after serving as Chief Administrative Officer for CLEAR, an industry leader in biometrics, identity management solutions, and aviation security. Prior to joining the private sector, David served as Chief of Staff to U.S. Customs Service Commissioners Ray Kelly and Robert Bonner and Acting Commissioner Charles Winwood. So, a lot going on in the immigration space these days. We've got congressional legislation that's been kicking around on Capitol Hill. President Trump signed an executive order recently. And most high profile, of course, is the issue of separating children from their parents at the border. Let's start with breaking all this down. Elizabeth, this crisis started with Trump's zero tolerance policy. Can you explain what that policy is and sort of how we ended up in the situation with family separation? Sure. The zero tolerance policy has been kicked around and attempted for many, many years. It's not something brand new and thought of by the Trump administration. The idea behind it is that instead of allowing for folks to just get caught and released at the border, they are brought in and processed either through a magistrate, um, but there's some sort of consequence for at least having crossed the border. Um, I think some folks' idea before was more than once or twice. If you get caught a third time, you're processed and you are detained for a while. I think the Trump administration tried to go a bit farther, and even for those folks who were crossing for the first time, they were getting processed, sent through a magistrate, serving some time, and then getting sent back perhaps even a little bit farther into the country they were from than just returned right at the border. So that's sort of what the zero tolerance policy is about. David, let me turn over to you. You worked uh, at the Department of Homeland Security when it was being created. Can you talk a little bit about all of the different um, levels of governance at play here. We've got the president doing executive orders. You've got the head of the Department of Homeland Security who's weighed in, and then agencies underneath that. 
Meanwhile, you've got DOJ plays a role, too. Can you help us to, to pull that apart a little bit and understand what the different roles are of each of these players? Absolutely. And thank you for that question. I think it's very interesting right now. The conversation has been so focused on ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And really, you need to work your way backwards from where the rubber meets the road in terms of the operational agencies up to the policymakers, back up to the White House. And you were appropriate to point out it all starts with the president's policy and with the executive order working its way down through the department. So much of the debate today centers around ICE's implementation of those policies. But truly, more often than not, agencies like ICE and like CBP are not necessarily involved in the policy formulation at all. Truly, they are the mechanics in the process, they're given a directive that comes from the department, and they are ordered to carry that directive out as efficiently and as quickly as they can. Often they have very little say in what the policy consideration is behind that. And and I would point out that, interestingly, you have in the leadership of both CBP with Kevin McAleenan, the current commissioner, and the acting... CBP is the... Customs uh, and Border Protection, I apologize. And the acting director of ICE with Ron Vitello, two men who have really grown up in the respective agencies. These are folks who are not um, Senate-confirmed outsiders who have come in to run these agencies, but folks who certainly with Vitello, who spent his whole career starting as a Border Patrol agent, and with McElhinney, who left private practice law to join CBP immediately after 9-11, Uh, They understand the agency and they understand the mechanics. They're thoughtful and they recognize the difficult job they have to do. But more, uh, more frequently than people might realize, they're not actually brought to the table to think about the policy piece. That comes from the department. And very often the department is taking direction directly from the president and the president's White House advisors. Let me ask you a follow up question about ICE. There's been a a growing uh, sort of chant about abolishing ICE, and Democrats in particular have embraced this idea that ICE um, has become a real problem in our immigration uh, policy, and it should be eliminated. Does that make any sense from a policy perspective, or what would that even mean from on-the-ground implementation of our immigration policy? It's a really important question, Elizabeth, and I think it's a much more complicated question than simply abolishing the agency. For those of us who have been in this city for a long time, we all understand that the only thing more difficult than defunding or getting rid of an agency is perhaps creating a new one. And we have to remember that ICE is essentially a new agency. It was built out of pieces of the U.S. Customs Service and INS. And we also need to remember the broader mission of the agency. Obviously, we're in a very difficult political time with respect to the policy uh, that we're discussing here today on immigration. But the broader mission for ICE includes narcotics investigation and money laundering investigation, very important counterfeit goods and merchandise investigations, strategic arms investigations, which is a a critical component of our counterterrorism efforts at the border. 
to simply say get rid of ice doesn't take into consideration all the other very important pieces that have been under the mandate and control of that investigative agency since literally the creation of DHS. So I think it's it's a simple it's a simple way to put we're not happy with the immigration policy, right? But it's not really a thoughtful consideration of the true mandate and all the incredible work that the men and women at that agency are doing that have nothing to do with immigration policy. You know, that's a really helpful uh, description because I think a lot of people don't understand all of the aspects of the work that that particular agency does. So that's helpful. Let's turn our attention back to Capitol Hill. The House had been working on some legislation recently um, and it, it failed to get a majority vote in, in the U.S. House. The Goodlatte bill, which was considered the compromise bill, really failed pretty dramatically uh, at the end of June. Elizabeth Mayer, maybe you can talk a little bit about what happened there, and is there any hope of a, of a legislative solution before the end of this year? Uh, well, to answer uh, your question in brief, no, I do not believe there is much hope for a legislative solution before the end of the year. To expand a bit on your question, members of the House Freedom Caucus, some of the members who were very committed to passing some sort of a DREAM Act, which uh, for the listeners uh, would allow uh, children who have been living here since a, a young age to stay here in the United States and perhaps be on a, uh, a track toward citizenship. Everybody wanted to work something out, and they negotiated in earnest. But at the end of the day, I believe that there was uh, not enough trust and not enough compromising among the two groups. And basically, the compromise fell apart. President Trump, some will also say, did not lend enough support in the beginning, even for um, the Goodlatte Compromise Bill, which was a more conservative version of a bill that had been first considered in the House. That bill had a DREAM Act in it. It had uh, a number of other provisions, but at the end of the day, I think some of the moderates didn't like and uh, Democrats didn't like uh, more stringent asylum standards. Um, E-Verify, which most uh, businesses are familiar with, there was an effort to make it mandatory and nationwide in its application, and a number of House members didn't like that. And at the end of the day, immigration as an issue takes into account almost every facet of policy you can imagine. It takes labor into account. It takes health care into account. It takes agriculture into account. And it was just too big an idea and a concept still, after all this time, to make its way across the finish line. It's clear, though, that the House members did a lot of work in trying to move the ball forward here. Are there any particular aspects of this compromise bill that came forward that you think are going to be a part of any legislation in the future? Or do you think that this is something that they'll have to scrap and, and start with a blank sheet of paper? That's a very good question. Um, I do believe that there are aspects of the bill um, that will 
uh, be carried into the next year and, and that will get worked on. There were ideas for the reform of legal immigration laws that would, in some folks' opinion, be more receptive to the needs of the United States. So I think that will get worked on. Um, I do believe that um, if this uh, family separation issue isn't resolved anytime soon. Um, some of the newer provisions that got folded in at the last minute that prohibited the separation of families would continue to be considered, as well as, though, on the flip side, an end to what is called the Flores decision, which only allows minors to be held for 20 days. So you have an effort to keep families together. On the flip side, you also also had a legislative end to a limit to the number of days a family could be kept in detention. So um, I think that all of those issues aren't going away, and I think they will be considered next year. I think there were um, some interesting provisions in the Ryan bill also around entry-exit technology. And the technology that's being used at the border today, considerable attention was paid by staff to the use of biometrics, um, not just at land borders, but specifically also at seaports and at airports. And what's, I think, very interesting about that is the great work that CBP, Customs and Border Protection, has been already working on and has had underway in airports for the last couple of years. We're starting to see the rollout of pilots at international airports where CBP is using very interesting facial technology, facial recognition technology. And there were provisions in the Ryan bill, interestingly, that specifically called for cooperation between CBP and TSA, marrying up the two, marrying up the registered traveler programs, and talking about how we could use that same type of facilitating technology to not only address the entry and the exit issues as a matter of immigration, but also domestic security, and really give U.S. travelers kind of a one-stop shop of technology and opportunity as they move through an airport. I think those are provisions that really recognize the advancements in technology and are things that will continue to be on the table as this or other types of legislation around travel, aviation, security, and immigration continue to move forward. And I would just add on to that great explanation by David to say that this is one of the reasons that um, a lot of, of folks do not want to stop working on comprehensive immigration slash border reform. These ideas have been around literally since the late 1990s for a U.S. entry and exit system, and it has never really happened the way that it should. And so there are those folks who don't want to do comprehensive immigration reform, but in giving that up, you sometimes also give up on perfecting what has begun in earnest from the Congress outward to the agencies to protect American citizens uh, and to facilitate cross-border trade in these entry-exit system advancements. You know, this technology that you're talking about has been developed over a long period of time, but it's really starting to impact the way that people uh, travel. And it's been a very interesting uh, evolution of the use of that technology. Has it been controversial at all, or has it been relatively widely embraced? 
Elizabeth, that's exactly the right question. It's very interesting to see the current debate particularly around the use of facial recognition. There's been a lot of questions as to the efficacy of the algorithms behind facial recognition and whether or not they're able to efficiently and appropriately discern faces of different races and ethnicities. And that really is about the evolution of the technology. That's an interesting piece, and there's been quite a bit of debate about that as of late. There's also been a lot of questions around the utility and the appropriateness of the government storing biometrics, having massive files, tens of millions of records of people's high-resolution facial images and fingerprints. And down the road, we'll see biometrics come in many other forms. These are just the things we think about today, but soon enough, it could be voice imprints. It could even be your gait, the way you walk. There are a lot of determinants that are being um, considered right now and invested in as a matter of technology. The question is, should it be a private sector matter? Should it be an opt-in matter? Should it be a government matter? Should it be required for U.S. citizen? All of these are very legitimate policy questions, and they will continue to be debated as this technology is brought to bear. You know, we've talked a lot about some of these key policy issues. Let's talk about the politics just as we finish up here. We have a midterm election in about four months. Elizabeth Mayer, let me start with you. Do you think that immigration is going to be a big issue in the November elections? And if so, how do you think that cuts? Do you think that helps Democrats or Republicans? Well, I would say uh, traditionally it helps um, sort of true red state uh, members and senators running for office. Um, And I really do believe that the issue helped elevate Donald Trump's profile and helped him win um, his election. I would say at this stage of the game, however, four months out, it could be somewhat of a wash. But I I just have to be honest, I've seen so much momentum from the individuals who are upset and concerned about uh, the children who have been separated from their parents at the border. Now, again, that's a very complicated issue, and I don't believe that the, the truth of the issue in total has been explained. But the fact of the matter is you can't make up a one-year-old child having to present himself before a judge to determine his fate. And so I I believe that in a lot of ways uh, that has created a momentum that could turn the uh, midterm elections another way. David Cohen, any thoughts on this? I think there's no doubt that immigration is going to play a very significant role in this. The visceral reaction that everyone has to this, the sides that they take, so line up today, uh, for better or for worse, along partisan lines. And I think Elizabeth's points are spot on. Um, This is going to drive voters out. This is going to put people at the polls. People are emotive about this. Um, depending on the side they take on both sides. And uh, this will have a significant impact in November. Fascinating issues. Well, thank you both for joining me today, and thank you for listening to our podcast. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. 
If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.